Good morning, Pathway Church. It's good to see you today. You uh, survived the rain, so it's good you're here. The announcement today is pretty exciting, isn't it? That that God's uh, bringing this journey that we've been on to a conclusion and an exciting one. Uh, I spent a couple hours with the candidate on the phone this week, and I love his heart, and uh, I'm so excited. I won't be here for the big reveal next Sunday because we're going up to Kentucky to see Brenda's mom for a week, and so Pastor Nate's going to be speaking next week, so that's going to be awesome, and uh, you're going to enjoy that, and uh, you'll learn more about the new candidate and what God is doing. When I started this series, I had no idea how the timeline was going to play out, but I think God did. And, uh, you know, we're coming to the end of a long, long wait, what feels like a long wait, I'm sure, to many of you. And uh, today we're talking about waiting on God and what that looks like and what that feels like. Let's pray. Father, we come today so grateful for your love and your faithfulness. And for these next few moments, Lord, help us to wait on your Holy Spirit to speak to our lives and to speak to our hearts. And for that, we'll give you praise and honor in Christ's name. Amen. So how are you waiting? I asked some people, no, I'm not so good, you know. Well, let me just give you a little quiz to, to see how you do. If you're going down a two-lane highway, you're on the way to a meeting, you're running a little late, and it's a 55-mile-an-hour zone, and you get behind Grandpa, and he's doing 45. Uh, what do you do? You say, hey, this is a chance just to calm down and see the scenery and enjoy the world that God has created. That's A. B, you decide if I get six inches off his bumper, uh, maybe I'll speed him up a little bit. You know, so you're driving right up as close as you can get. C is you start weaving out past the yellow line, acting like a NASCAR driver trying to, to take off. Scenario number two, you're at Publix, you know, that 15 and less item line. And the guy in front of you has 28 items, you know, because you counted them. And uh, he's in front of you, and your first reaction is, look, I've got plenty of time. I'm sure he's got somebody, someplace he needs to be very quickly. Just, this is great. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy it. B, you decide he must be mathematically challenged, so I'm going to offer some math tutoring for him, you know. Or C, you go over and you help him lovingly put 15 items on the conveyor belt, and then you start tossing the other stuff out in the aisle, you know. Now, those are crazy, maybe too real (laughs) uh, situations, Uh, but they're pretty tame compared to a lot of the waiting that we have to do. The young man or young woman who is waiting for marriage and wondering if Mr. Wright or Miss Wonderful will ever come along. Will God ever provide that for you? The childless couple who for weeks and months and years have tried to have a family and nothing's happened and you're wondering if God's ever going to answer your prayer. The spouse who's difficult and uh, the marriage is struggling, you wonder, is, is God going to change that situation? Is, is anything going to happen to make it better? Then there's a family that's waiting for a good paying job as debts continue to mount up. Or the family that there's a biopsy and the doctor said three days and it feels like three years as you're waiting for those results. Lewis Smead says that waiting is our destiny. 
as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. We wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for not yet that feels like not ever. Now, we've been looking at the Old Testament in these first five books, the Pentateuch, and sharing some stories. And this morning uh, is the final sermon in this particular series. And I, I just want to be up front, straight up with you. I would not have been a very good Israelite in the desert. You remember they, they came out, the, the sea opened, they walked across, and then for the next 40 years, they trudge around the desert. Uh, I, I would have struggled with that. If you're a parent, you would have struggled with that. You take your kids on a trip, they ask two questions when you're about five miles out of town. What's the first one? Are we, are we there yet? Yeah, well, another thousand miles, you know. Uh, how much further or how much longer, you know. Can you imagine those Israelite kids when they're traipsing around the desert and, you know, their parents had said, got them all excited, got them all fired up. We're going to leave slavery. We're going to go out into the God's promised land. And, you know, they're all fired up and they're excited and they leave in the middle of the night. That's kind of cool. And then they, uh, you know, they're, there's just a really bounce in their step. But after about five or six or seven years, that bounce begins to not bounce quite so high, you know. The trip on the map should have gone by the way of the sea. That, that's the route they should have taken. Uh, it's a fairly difficult trip, a couple hundred miles, which wouldn't be hard for us in a car but, or even with a horse. But, you know, when you're on foot and you got a thousand people, I mean, a million people with you, it's, it's a little tougher, you know, journey. Uh, Brent and I like to go out west, and we, we just love those western states. And we, we like Montana where you can see where the tracks of where the wagon trains went. And, and we're kind of weird. Um, we always try to get information about the area where we are. And sometimes it's, it's really strange. Like uh, we bought a book, Death Over Grand Canyon, uh, how the, all the ways that people have died in Grand Canyon. And then death in Yellowstone. <laughs> people died in Yellowstone. But this particular time, we were just kind of wanting to get the stories of the people who were on those wagon trains. And we came across the story of Clara Barton. Uh, Clara Brown, I'm sorry. Uh, Clara was in her late 50s. She was uh, a recently freed African-American slave. Uh, and she signed on with this wagon train to go to Denver, Colorado from Leavenworth, Kansas. It's about a 700-mile journey. And she was the cook. And what that meant was way, way, way before dawn, she had to be up cooking bison roast and dried apples and biscuits to feed this large group of hungry people. And then she worked late into the night after they had traveled all day preparing this food. Like many on the wagon train, she walked the whole way because they had to put as many supplies on the train as they could. So 700 miles on foot and getting up early before dawn and going to bed late into the night. The drive behind her spirit was she was looking for her daughter that she'd been separated from and she believed that she was in Denver, Colorado. It's amazing what the human spirit can accomplish when it has a dream. With this dream in their heart, the Israelites set out on a trip to the promised land, which should have been about 11 days. 
It says in Deuteronomy 1-2, it takes about 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by Mount, by Mount Seir Road. But if you haven't noticed, God doesn't always take us on the most direct path. Sometimes he doesn't even take the next most direct path. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. The concern of God was, these folks aren't ready to go to the promised land. Their heart's not right. Their courage isn't right. They spent 400 years in slavery, and so they need some time to, to prepare. So he takes them out into the desert. He didn't intend to be in the desert as long as they were. It was because of their sinfulness they stayed there so long. Why does God ask us to wait? I mean, why didn't he just fix things when we say, God, fix it? You know? Don't you like that when you pray those prayers and God takes care of it at that moment? You like those instantaneous things? I do. You know, but sometimes it's not instantaneous. Sometimes it's a wait. Sometimes it's a long wait. And God's not really in a hurry because God's not as concerned about our destination as he is about what happens to us on the journey. What happens in our lives, what happens in our heart. He wants us to be the right kind of people when we arrive at where he's taking us. And often it takes time and circumstances to create in us the heart that beats after God's own heart. Now, I know that intellectually. I know that theologically as a pastor, but I still struggle with it because I hate to wait. You know, I, I really like it to happen right now. Waiting on God requires some things from us. Waiting on God requires obedience. 43 times in the Old Testament, it tells us, wait on the Lord. The command to wait is a theme throughout God's Word, both Old and New Testament. When Abraham is told in his old age, he's 75 years old, that he's going to have a child. Now, most people at 75 don't have babies, unless you're a movie star. But, you know, they're, they're, they're not having a baby. So, at 75 years old... And then it's 24 years before God actually fulfills his promise to Abraham. He was an old man at 75. Now he's a really old man. You know, it's amazing to me. God tells the Israelites he's going to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. But that was 400 years before he actually did it. God tells the people of Israel that he's going to bring a Messiah to them. And years go by, and generations go by, and centuries go by. Where's the Messiah? Where's the promised Messiah? And when he finally arrives, they don't even recognize him. Jesus grew up, started his ministry with his disciples, and they expected him to right all the wrongs, to put the Israelites back where they belonged, and to get them out from under the foot of the Roman Empire. Is he going to be the saving king? And they're kind of confused when he goes to a cross. And then he's resurrected and he's going back to the father. And the question on their heart is, are you going to restore your kingdom? They're asking, is the waiting finally over? 
But then we get to Acts chapter 1, and we find his followers waiting once again in an upper room for the promise of the Holy Spirit to indwell their hearts. Paul writes in Romans 8, But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul's more optimistic than I am. (laughs) We wait for it patiently. In fact, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation, the very last chapter is about waiting. It states, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this scroll. What's our first question when we hear that? How soon? (laughs) When are you coming? People do all kinds of speculating about that. It may not seem like it, but in light of eternity, it is soon. Hang on, because John ends that amazing book by saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. We're waiting. It's the waiting that's critical. I love what Ben Patterson writes. He says, what God does in us while we're waiting is as important as what we're waiting for. What God does in us while we're waiting, is as important as what we're waiting for. Paul gives a somewhat intimidating message in Romans chapter 5 because he says, while you're waiting, you're going to suffer. Who wants to hear that? But the suffering produces perseverance, and the perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Biblical waiting is being obedient when we don't know exactly where or when or how. Biblical waiting is not passively waiting around as we're going through difficult things in our lives and just saying, okay, God's going to take care of this someday, you know. As we wait on the Lord, we still have responsibilities to serve others. Henry Nowen said we're all wounded healers. We wrap up our wounds and we go and we serve and bless others. I sometimes hear folks who are going through tough things, and they go, well, I'm just waiting for God to fix this. I'm just waiting on the Lord. It sounds very spiritual, you know. Uh, They're horrible financial managers. They don't save. They've gotten themselves in debt way over their head. They're impulse buyers, and they're in this huge hole, and they say, well, I'm just waiting for God to fix this. That's kind of like believing that You know, Dillard's is going to send you a notice and say, hey, we made a mistake. You get a $500 refund, you know. There's a theological word for that. Don't be stupid. That's the theological word. Waiting on the Lord means getting yourself some financial counseling, beginning to follow God's stewardship principles. Biblical waiting does not mean we avoid messy responsibilities. Rather, it's waiting on God with confidence, discipline, expectation, and active clinging to our Lord. God, I'm going to keep holding on to you even though I don't know exactly where we're going or when this is going to be over. Waiting on the Lord requires patient trust. Both of those words are hard, patience and trust. Will I trust God while I wait? The Israelites had gone through the Red Sea with God. 
They had seen him do miracle after miracle. He had provided food in the desert. He had provided water in the desert. They experienced all these miracles. And then when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai for 40 days, they panic. They don't wait. It says in Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, 40 days, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, we know what happened to him. You know? They don't want to wait. They don't want to wait on the Lord's timing. They don't understand that God has good reasons that you and I must wait. We must be willing to ask the question, will I trust that God has good reasons for asking me to be patient and await, even if it does not make sense to me at this particular moment. There's a passage in 2 Peter that's kind of interesting. It says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, and understand why he's patient not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God has a very different perspective than most of us. A Christian businessman was reading that passage in 2 Peter, and, and uh, he was kind of intrigued by it. And in his devotional time, he's talking to the Lord, and he goes, Lord, is, is a thousand years really like a minute to you? And he goes, well, yes, it is. Well, if that's true, then a million dollars must be like a penny to you. Lord said, well, yeah. He goes, well, then, Lord, can, can I have one of those pennies? He says, yes, you can. Just wait a minute. Think about it. You'll get it. We often want God's resources, but not his timing. Waiting means that God knows what he's doing, and I trust his word. If you're single and you live in a society where most people think you're supposed to be married, that marriage is normal and, and you're not. And, uh, and so you're looking for some special person to complete your life. And you're praying and wondering when he or she will ever come. And so in the meantime, you get into this relationship and it's taking away some of your loneliness. You're not really sure it's God's choice, but at least it's a relationship. And some of your questions are you're not sure if they have the same faith commitment you have. Maybe they're pressuring you sexually, even though you're not married. And because of the wait and you've waited so long, you say, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and act and uh, I won't worry about the consequences until later. You have some dreams, yet nothing seems to be happening. And you're tired of waiting. You've prayed, but the answer is so slow and in coming. And you're tempted to try and do it on your own. We all have areas in our life where waiting's difficult. It's hard. Henry Nowen's one of my favorite writers, and he's been dead for a few years now. And one of the last books that he wrote was called Sabbatical Journeys. And in that book, he shares a story of the flying Rudellas. They were friends of Henry, and they were an acrobatic group, you know, that swing from the uh, trapeze. And so it's really interesting. He goes, with uh, this relationship, there's, there's two people in the, in the flying trapeze. You have the 
flyer and you had the catcher. You know, the flyer is the one that releases the bar high above the people and then they wait for the catcher to grab them. You know, uh, it's kind of a unique and special relationship, especially if you're the flyer, you know. And uh, while the flyer is swinging high above the crowd, there comes that moment that they have to release the bar. And what the Rudellas told Henry Nowen, it's critical that when they release the bar, they become as still as possible. They arc their back, they hold out their arms, and they wait for the catcher to snatch them out of the air. And they said, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. They must patiently wait and trust that those strong hands will grab them and rescue them. The catcher will catch them, but they have to wait. Now, I don't know about you. I'd rather be the catcher than the flyer. I, I decided that a long time ago. But uh, it's hard for us sometimes to wait. Some of us have experienced that with God. He tells us to let go and trust him. And we start flailing away. It's not happening the way we hoped it would. And so we're not sitting still. We're trying to fix it. Waiting on the Lord requires Humility. To wait on something from God requires humility. It requires we recognize that we're not in charge, we're not in control, and the timing is not up to me. It's interesting that in our society, there's a direct relationship between significance and importance and how long you have to wait. If you're really important, you move to the front of the line, right? You know, that's, that's kind of how it works. I heard this story from a motivational speaker, a Christian businessman, and he was sharing that uh, he was supposed to meet some folks at a dinner theater, and when he got there, they were standing outside on the sidewalk, and he goes, well, why are you out here? They said, well, the maitre d' said that there's tickets are all sold out. He goes, follow me. He goes in the maitre d', he goes, we, we want some seats uh, for this dinner theater. And he goes, I'm sorry, we're sold out. He goes, no, there's a place. He grabs a table and takes off down toward the front of the building. The maitre d' shocked, is chasing him, and the, the folks that he was with are, are following him. When they get there, he sets the table down. He gets some chairs, puts it around it. He's sitting right in front of the stage. And he smiled and said, my friends came to see about the show. I came to see the show. And we kind of admired that kind of spunk. You know, wow, that's a take charge guy. The higher the status, the less you have to wait. But waiting says, I'm not in charge. I'm the creation, not the creator. God does not have that same admiration that we have for those spunky people that push themselves to the front of the line. In fact, Jesus said, the first are going to be last. And those in the back of the line, he's going to call them to the front of the line. Because he knows while we're waiting, he's doing something in our hearts that we desperately need. So that when we get to our destination, we're prepared. As his children, we have to trust his timing and wait. The most important activity we do while we wait is we pray. It's prayer that gives us the courage to wait when we're not quite sure what's next. It's the prayer that gives us the courage to know that we're not waiting alone, that he's waiting with us. 
I love what Moses says in Exodus 33. Then Moses said to him, and he's talking to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. As much as Moses wanted to go to the promised land, I mean, he's been traipsing around the desert for 40 years. As much as he wants to go to the promised land, he does not want to go there without God. He would rather stay in the desert and not have the prosperity of the promise if it meant he had to go without God's presence. That's the kind of heart that you and I need. We don't want to go anywhere. We don't want to do anything without his presence in our lives. Wait for the Lord. Sadly, the Israelites were not very good at this waiting thing. First, they tried to build their own gods. Then when they finally got to the promised land and they sent some spies out to check things out, they come back and say, the the people there are really big. We're afraid to cross. The result is a whole adult generation had to wander around until the doubters die off and their children can enter the promise. Now, God in his grace, as those people are traipsing around the desert for 40 years, continues to provide them water continues to give them manna. Even though they're outside his plan, he continues to love them. But the sad thing is that generation never knew what could have been in their life. I sometimes wonder, what do we miss? Because we fail to obey, because we fail to wait, because we fail to pray. It was Monday morning, I went into the office in Lexington and Uh, Nancy had called in earlier that morning saying that she couldn't be there. She had 24 hours to get out of her apartment. Now, you had no Nancy. She was always having crazy things going on. She and her husband had bought a new house, and uh, they had asked for a week's extension on their rent so they could paint. And the, the landlord had said, sure, you can do that unless somebody wants immediate occupancy. That's what happened. So they had 24 hours to get out. So I asked my administrative assistant, Shirley, I go, how was Nancy? She goes, you know, Nancy, she was as calm as she could be. 24 hours to move. And I talked to Nancy later. She goes, I always look calm on the outside. I panic on the inside. As we wait on the Lord, we don't have to panic. We're not in charge. He is. It's not my plan. It's his plan. Waiting on the Lord requires hope. As Hebrews says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not yet see. In other words, if we already had it, we wouldn't be hoping for it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we in faith wait for God. And the wait is not alone. And the wait is creating in us the heart we need to be the person God wants us to be. Most importantly, the one we wait for is worth the wait. He's worth the wait. My favorite passage is Isaiah 40. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. There's a limit to our strength, even the strongest of us. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Would you pray with me? Lord, some of us are waiting. In fact, some of us are really tired of waiting. We prayed and asked and hoped, and nothing happens. Yet, Lord, there's nowhere else we want to turn. There's nothing else that we want to trust. 
So, Lord, do in us what is needed while we wait for you. In the relationship that we're tempted to try to make work, help us to wait. In the problem that we're tempted to fix by ourselves, help us to wait on you. In fact, Lord, we don't want to go anywhere unless your presence is going with us. So as long as it takes, we will obey, we will trust, we will walk by faith and not sight. And we will allow you to shape in us as you desire. We understand what happens while we're waiting is as important as the destination. So come, Lord Jesus. We're waiting in your name. Nineteen years ago on 9-11, many of us remember exactly where we were. I remember the Sunday after that event at church. Everybody was at church and everybody was going, what's next? What are we going to do? Where are we headed? Mike Bro was pastor at Southland Christian, who was a neighboring church. And the sermon Mike preached that Sunday was, was so powerful to me. It spoke to me. He came out that Sunday morning. The first thing he did, he took a knee. And he said, we were brought to our knees on 9-11. And he goes, you know what we need to do next? We need to drop the other knee. And we need to stand before the Father and to wait on Him and to trust Him. And then he ended that sermon in a very interesting way. He had pictures of the people walking among the rubble. And they were holding up the pictures of their wife, their brother, their friend, their child. Have you seen them? Have you seen this person? Desperately looking for them. And he said, you know, there's somebody else who's waiting. It's our Heavenly Father. And he's walking among the rubble of our life and he's holding up our picture. Have you seen my daughter? Have you seen my son? Have you seen my precious children? For you see, while we're waiting on him, he's waiting on us to become the people he's called us to be. As we stand to sing this morning, think about that as God calls you. Oh uh-huh.
our faith father to give us that endurance and that perseverance and seasons of waiting where we've prayed and we've asked but we've still not seen that answer Lord we have faith that you will come through that you work all things together for our good It's the name of Jesus that we pray, the strong Son of God. Amen.